It is nearly the trade deadline. Zach and I are here. We're making our latest appearance on the Selby is Godcast, and that can only mean one thing. Showcase? Are we being <laughs> showcased right now, Zach? Is like a uh, podcast conglomerate going to pick us up if we knock these next 40 minutes out of the park? That's all I've seen anytime anybody steps out of bed. Showcase? That guy breathe. Showcase. Proof well, look, of life. Showcase. Nobody watches more prices right than I do. But, uh, you know, there's only one showcase showdown per day. And they take the summer off. So, I mean, it's not as common as people are making it out to be. Can we put that to rest a little bit or at least put it in the proper context of what that means in 2020? We might, we might have done all, that before, but I feel like it's needed right now. Like, showcases haven't been a thing since, like, 1987, okay? So, like, teams scout, and they have tons of data and information and um, just insight. They save their notes from when they draft, when players are drafted. Like, they have tons of information. You know, it's not like 40 years ago when it was like, hey, I heard a rumor that this Smith kid on the Mets is pretty good. Why don't you go drive six hours and watch his double-A game and... You know, you can see his three at-bats and then report back to us and we'll decide if we want to trade our best player for him. Like, it's not, that doesn't happen anymore. So, I think, you know, it's a little different this year because you don't have a minor league sis season and you don't have um, maybe the wealth of data about the guys at the alternate site that you normally would. Um, but, no, not everything is a showcase. Teams don't make franchise-altering decisions based on one start by somebody, whether it's a, a rookie in Tristan McKenzie or a veteran who's proven to be one of the better pitchers in the league and Mike Clevenger, um, showcases, it's not, it doesn't mean what it used to. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. So you're saying nobody forgot that Mike Clevenger can still get hitters out at a pretty good clip or that he's been one of the best pitchers in baseball over the past four years or that he can throw in the mid-90s and strike a lot of people out. Nobody forgot any of this or needs to see another start to prove that that is still the case. So I think we both made the point this week on Twitter and stuff we wrote that like the only, and, and showcase is not the word that describes this, but the only, like it tells other teams, hey, like you're not going to lowball us and get what you want. We're not going to just desperately settle for whatever we can for Mike Clevenger. It's a matter of, you can try to prime away, but he's back on our team. He's starting for us. He's giving us a good chance to win. So that's not showcasing. You know, I've heard, I still have heard people on the radio, we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. I've heard people today say, you know, I think this is a showcase for a trade. It's like, what is six innings against the Twins going to, how is that going to change your opinion when the, has a track record of uh, four seasons worth of pitching at the major level. It's, this is not, we, we love buzzwords, right? Like we just find one buzzword and it's just, you're right. Showcase, showcase, showcase. Gotta be a showcase. <laughs> Contention windows out, showcase in. That's yeah. how this works. Yeah, I, I agree. We both wrote something to that effect. And I, and I think that's valuable most valuable thing to the Indians is Clevenger is back and he gives them a great chance to win greater than anybody else they were going to position in that starting spot. When he's out there, you got a chance to win a game. So that is what is most important for the Indians. But beyond that, if they are going to have these conversations with teams and it's not like the, the rumors ceased when, when he got put on punishment. No, it, the, the, the rumors persisted. The articles were a plenty, and I have a strong feeling that Chris Antonetti's phone may have rung or may have uh, dung with a text every once in a while, a little bit more often than before because teams smell blood in the water. They want to know, are you desperate to move this guy? Is this someone that you're not capable of bringing back into your clubhouse? And if so, boy, I can help you out. Sit down, Chris. I can take that guy off your hands. It'll just be simple. I'll do you this favor this one time, and then you can help me out in the future. It's, it's not like that. The Indians could say, no, he's, he's back. We're fine with him pitching. Everyone uh, is working towards mending whatever may have been hurt or, or broken in the actions of, of, of Clevenger and Plesak, but 
we're comfortable with him as part of our clubhouse. And I, I, when you're approaching a, a trade deadline that is already unconventional, you want to try to hold as much leverage as you can, uh, especially in a situation where teams know the Indians are going to be desperate for offense if they make a move, maybe need to make a couple of moves. So anything you can kind of keep on your side of this table as some sort of leverage in, in your position is, is pretty crucial. Yeah, and this, this differs from the Trevor Bauer trade scenario last year because with Bauer, they had a year and a half of control left. So it was a big sticking point that whatever team acquired him, you would get two playoff runs. Now, the Reds ended up trading for him, and they might get zero playoff runs with him. Um, but that was, that was a big part of his value. With Clevenger, he's, signed for, or he's under team control for two more years, but I don't know that that playoff run in 2020 is as valuable as it is in a normal year just because, one, who knows how this season will play out under the pandemic. Two, the playoffs, I mean, it's 16 teams are making it, so it's not like some team that's on the cusp of a wildcard spot is going to make some trade to acquire a really good player just to get them into October. Um, and the fact that, I mean, you've got a best of three first round, that's usually a, that's going to be a coin flip. And then you have the normal division series, which already feels like a coin flip. Like it's, there's a lot more randomness involved in the postseason and a lot less um, concern about getting there. So I think, I don't think his value would drop too much if you wait until this winter to trade him. Clevenger, and I think that was already going to be a strong consideration. So it'll be interesting. It's it's so difficult in this season to find the right match. You know, there's only a handful of teams that are on the outside looking in in the playoff race. Some of those teams, like the Angels, like they're still planning on contending next year. So I don't think they're going to be true sellers. I think they would actually be a potential fit for Clevenger. Um, so you can just see the dynamics and how strange this is where it's not the clear cut. Okay, like teams have 100 games under their belt and we can identify 12 teams that are going to sell and six teams that are going to stand pat and then 12 teams that are going to buy. It's it's just a freaking mess. And the fact that we're, we're recording this on Wednesday, which means there's like four games, five games left before the trade deadline, means there could be tons of shifts in how teams position themselves just between now and the deadline. So you could see a lot of last minute activity. You could see a ton of dialogue that doesn't actually lead anywhere. Um, and I think, I, I still think it's going to be really difficult to pull something big off, especially since the Indians, you know, they like to acquire, if they're going to trade someone like Clevenger, they want younger players who are going to help them for a while. You know, if it's the Framil Reyes mold where Reyes I think is signed for another four years after this one so it's tough those are a lot of different criteria you've got to meet to to find the right match and we were talking about that at this point or a little bit before but with the Bauer trade there were a lot of those similar um, sticking points and, and hurdles that they needed to clear and they came away from that trade in a position where everyone felt like they needed to get him off the roster because of him chucking the ball over center field and everything else that comes with, with all the good in Trevor Bauer, they came away in that trade with us all saying, wow, they did really, really well. So I can't imagine that they would pull off a, a similar deal and trade, let's say Clevenger, and not come away with us having a similar sort of view of, of the trade. I mean, if they can trade Trevor Bauer and get back a guy to help them immediately in, in Puig, and then you get the power hitter plus a couple of arms that are – a little bit intriguing. You don't know exactly what they are, but they're they're more than just a lottery ticket. I mean, you can trade all of that, or get back all of that in that sort of trade. It, I think it, it sort of lays out the the blueprint of the what they would be expecting in, in something like a Clevenger deal. They're not going to pull that trigger unless the deal that that you see coming back is is one that makes you feel a similar sense of wow, they really did well. Well, and and part of the reason is because they don't have to do that. You, you can go find a veteran outfielder, um, a rental maybe, and part with something inconsequential for that player to help bolster the offense a little bit. And it's probably not going to help you as much, especially down the line, but then you can reassess how much sense it makes to trade Clevenger this winter. Um, because think about it, 
Like, this team, first of all, we talk about this team like, I mean, I know a lot of the season has been a struggle. It's been painful to watch this offense. They've had the drama off the field. You've got the manager who's missed most of the season. You know, they're going to change their name at some point. Like, it seems like there's been so much. It's been a circus. I've had several Browns writers tell me, welcome to covering uh, a team that makes more noise off the field than on the field. Except for the Indians have actually won games. Well, well, and that's the thing. (laughs) That's there's that that When all said and done... We're at the halfway point. They're 18 and 12. They have a 600 winning percentage. And I know that's a small sample. And I know that they've played a pretty soft schedule. But, like, that's a really good record. <laughs> you'd, you'd certainly take a 600 winning percentage um, any season, any 162-game season. So you think about the playoffs and you think about, man, the first round's three games. And you can trot Bieber, Clevenger, Savali out there, move Carrasco and Plesak to the bullpen, and then you only have to rely on, like, those guys, Karinchek, Hand, maybe Ali Perez. Like, that's that's a nice spot to be in. Um, and, and you can make a run like that if you add one or two just, like, smaller pieces that won't cost you much. So they don't have to trade Clevenger now. I think that's why they still have leverage. And, and some teams will call and think, you know, hey, don't you want to get rid of that uh, clubhouse cancer, Mike Clevenger? And, and even if... If that's not the case, I think the Indians could just say no. Like he's back. Like we're we're happy with where we are. You mentioned James Karinchak, and I am all about just finding a random thing about this dude on a daily basis, and the the absurd numbers that he's put up so far, and the way that everyone around baseball seems to be paying attention to. So different than what we've seen from Indians bullpenners in in years past. I know Andrew Miller was spectacular in 2016, and Cody Allen had a a really strong run. But, I mean, Andrew Miller was as nasty a left-hander as you'll find at the time. But I don't know that the Indians have had a guy like James Karinchek who does it quite this way before. And I don't know if Hmm. baseball has seen a guy doing it quite the way that he does. You know, it's all fastball, curveball, and nobody has figured him out. He has not had that... That meltdown, can't find the, the zone sort of game that I think everyone was a little bit worried about. And then I look today, as I just happened to be perusing fan graphs, and I pull up top 25 in war because I wanted to see where Shane Bieber was, and he's at 2.1 as we record this. And I know things are dangerous as you look in-season war, especially in a small sample size after seven starts. What are you truly going to learn from that, other than the fact that Bieber is uh, over half a win better than any other pitcher on this leaderboard right now, shows you the type of season that he's having. But the only reliever in the top 25, at least among guys that would actually qualify, is James Karinchek, right there at number 25, with uh, essentially being one win above replacement. And you can thank uh, the outstanding FIP for that, and you can thank the strikeouts as for why that FIP is so spectacular. Unbelievable season so far. So my favorite James Karinchak stat is he ranks 36th in the majors in strikeouts. But he ranks 130th in innings pitched. And yes, that means he has more strikeouts than so many different starting pitchers. Um, it's, it's been fantastic. He struck out more than 50% of the batters he's faced. You know, we were worried, like the one thing about him, and just because we hadn't seen him much at the major league level was... You know, would he have these outings where he just doesn't have it? Doesn't have the command, walks three guys, you know, and gives up a hit and it scores a few runs. He hasn't done that. He's six walks in 16 and two-thirds innings. I think he'll live with that, especially when he's got 31 strikeouts and has only given up five hits. Um, he's been, he legitimately has been the best reliever in baseball, I think. And and it's it's remarkable because he's he's so young. He's got, you know, no wear and tear on that arm. Um, which is always important because we've seen what happens when you use Cody Allen and Andrew Miller and Brian Shaw and even Brad Hand so much. Um, so they should have Karen check for a long time. He should be effective for a long time. And, you know, he throws two pitches. They're both elite. And you've seen him be able to attack hitters different ways so that they can't just sit on one of those pitches and tee off. I think some of his production and, and what makes him so good comes from something that we don't exactly have 100% qualified or or quantified. It's What's that? Psychoticness? Craziness? (laughs) I'm still waiting. He's a madman out there. I'm still waiting for the first time that he boxed because he's so prone to flipping the ball all around. 
I think it's, and, and I, without really knowing the guy very much, I, I would imagine it's something that just kind of helps him stay loose on the mound and not get too wound up in a particular situation. So I'm still waiting for that first balk as the ball trickles down the mound, as we've seen before. Uh, who was that? Uh, Johnny Cueto? Was it a playoff game where he dropped the ball and it was a block? I can't remember. Um, I think so. But uh, just watching him operate in the way that he hides the ball so well, I think adds to the, I mean, you look at, okay, what is the, the movement on his pitches? You know, what makes them so spectacular? And it's a fact that you can throw a 95, 96 mile per hour heater up in the zone that has above average rise or doesn't fall at the same rate as of other fastballs. But the, I mean, the curveballs, if you look at the, the numbers, it's not like, oh my gosh, it has the most drop ever in a curve. No, I mean, it's, it's really good, but I think it's the fact that he tunnels them so well and he hides mm-hmm. the ball so well from a unique release point that a lot of guys don't really use. And he's, the way that the, he brings the ball back and then up and then his body contorts and then he releases it from over the top, I think all of that combined with the stuff makes him as unhittable as he is. So you'll learn more about him and his background soon on The Athletic. I have a feature in the works. It's almost done. But um, he's, you know, the, the most fascinating thing to me about him is that, you know, in college he was a starter. And even when the Indians drafted him, he started out as a starter. They knew he was going to wind up in the bullpen. That experiment didn't last very long. But they say he, he had a really good changeup too. And he tried to teach himself, design himself, Jake Arietta's cutter. So I wanted, I wish I could have seen this guy with three, maybe four pitches throwing six, seven innings in a game. I think that would have been so fascinating because he has so much energy and he's screaming at himself and he's biting his glove and he's yelling F bombs and um, he's doing these things after he's successful. <laughs> like we've seen plenty of times pitchers shout fuck after they give up a home run. Or they walk a guy, but this guy strikes someone out on three pitcher pitches and he's yelling that. I think it would be just the best to watch him try to harness all that energy over six innings. God, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Um, so we spent so much time talking about the offense being putrid, and we can get back to that as a reason why they need to do what they're probably going to look to do at the trade deadline. But I don't know if we spent enough time talking about just how good this pitching staff has been and you mentioned the record. God, I don't want to make this always just a big negative poop on everything podcast when they've overall been really good thanks to a stellar pitching staff. And it's not just the starters, but again, I looked at the, the Fangrass wins above replacement. Let me just give you the top 10 in their numbers. Blue Jays at 3.4. Rockies 9th, 3.6. Mets 8th, also 3.6. Dodgers 4.1. Twins 4.2. Uh, Brewers 4.3, White Sox 4.4, Athletics third best in war over at Fangrass 4.5, Reds second, led by Trevor Bauer 4.8, the Cleveland Indians number one 6.4, <laughs> holy shit, that's uh, remarkable that they're almost they're going on two wins better as far as wins above replacement than any other staff in the game right now, holy shit. Smokes, that's incredible. Well, first of all, shout out to our buddy Hiram Boyd, who a couple days before opening day tried to tell me that Clevenger was the ace of the staff. Bieber was not. Um, I don't know anyone that would make that argument now. And Bieber, not only is he in the running for Cy Young, but you can make a legitimate case. And I wish I could remember who I said this to. I think Dennis Maniloff, maybe. Um, I, in, in a season like this, when I think it's going to be more difficult for position players to separate themselves from the pack, I think you can make a valid case for a starting pitcher, if incredibly dominant, to win the MVP. I think Bieber has at least made a case for himself through seven starts, a 135 ERA, a 170 FIP, nine walks to 75 strikeouts. I mean, this is, this is like... Corey Kluber at his best and then on steroids. It's just been remarkable. Now, don't say that with this sport. You can get people all riled up. <laughs> on acid. Now, I mean, it would take this level of performance the rest of the way, but we're already halfway through the season. That's so the thing. What's he going to get? Five more starts? Six more starts? not completely ridiculous that you could just continue pitching this way. Uh, I mean, even last night, 
as you said, we record this on Wednesday. So he, he throws against the Twins on Tuesday, and he's not great by any stretch of what we've seen so far this year, and yet he still strikes out 10. He walked, what, three in that game? And you're already out there, like, checking his temperature to make sure there's yeah. not some reason to get him in quarantine. Relative to his other starts, he was dog shit, and he still was awesome. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, if he continues on this pace, maybe he would have a, a case. It's This is, again, this is all weird. This and, and for hitters, I think coming out of the gate, it was difficult enough because they don't get to ramp up and see pitchers, pitches in spring training. Pitchers don't need to have to, have to face hitters to know where they're going to throw it in the zone and you know, kind of get their pitches corralled. But hitters need to see live pitching to be good, and I think that was part of their problem coming out of the gate. Maybe it's part of the Indians' problem coming out of the gate, though it hasn't really improved offensively. So maybe you're right. This is the year where you don't have a really strong – position player with enough time to build that healthy resume and a narrative to help back why he should be the MVP. So give a vote to Bieber. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, these, the voting is going to be challenging this year anyway, just because it's such a small sample. You'll probably have tons of contenders, but I show me someone with a better case thus far. Yeah. I'm, I'm just looking at the leaderboard now. The top three guys in baseball in Fangraphs War are all in the National League. Then you got Anthony Rendon at 1.7. And when War is not the end-all, be-all for any of this, but it's a good starting point. And you have Rendon, Brandon Lau, Kyle Lewis. Maybe this is the year where you do give a DH some love and Nelson Cruz because he's been up in the, the top ten. But there hasn't been time for guys to build that that strong narrative. Now in the National League, you have Mike Yastrzemski going nuts. You have Fernando Tatis mm-hmm. pissing everybody off and and <laughs> belting a dozen home runs in 31 games. And, and of course, Mookie Betts is going to get plenty of love. So that's that will be tough, especially between Tatis and Betts if they continue on this pace. But the American League, it's not not really been a. I mean, there's good guys having good seasons, but it's not like a slam dunk. Just give it to Mike Trout like we've seen in years past. Yeah, I, again, uh, he's got probably five more starts, I'm guessing. They played 30 games. He'll pitch again in, like, game 35, 36, five, maybe six more starts. I, I don't know. I keep waiting for him to regress. He hasn't done it yet. So it'll be interesting. And, and I think, yeah, it, it's crazy to think that, like, he's – are ahead of the pack in the Cy Young race. I mean, Lance Lynn, some other guys, yeah. Lucas Giolito threw a no-hitter. That's cool, but it's it's crazy. I mean, it, it it he was a very good pitcher last year. I think everyone was comfortable with saying this is going to be a number two, number three starter his whole career. And literally from day one this season, he's just looked like an ace and has never shown any signs that he's not. Yeah, I'm already seeing people writing that he's making a strong case as the best pitcher in baseball right now. And that's not even the conversation we were having like five, six starts ago when we were saying, well, if you could have any pitcher to go for the rest of his career, and in that sort of argument you're talking about, okay, what does he look like long term and, Mm -hmm. you know, age? Now it's, no, no, he actually just might be the best pitcher in baseball, and he's certainly pitching like it right now. And, And I think one common thread that you can... Uh, fine between him and his debut and then the way Savali and Plesak came up and then Tristan McKenzie coming up and, and, and wowing everybody with his stuff is none of these guys look like rookies when they debut. The, the Indians do such tremendous job of preparing their pitchers. I don't know how much credit you give to the, the minor league staff. I don't know how much you give to Ruben Diabla. I don't know how much you give to Carl Willis. I don't. I mean, you could just go through the whole list and say... Everybody deserves a little bit of credit for how these guys prepared. Maybe even toss some the catcher's way. Roberto Perez, you know, part of that as well. But the way that the Indians continuously have these guys ready to go and looking like they've done this a million times before, they deserve a hell of a lot of credit for that. So the three pitchers they drafted in 2016, and we've beat this topic um, to a bloody pulp, but Bieber, Savali, and Plesak this season, 15 walks, 139 strikeouts. So that, I mean, I wrote about this, I feel like a ton last year. I know Travis Sawchick has written about it recently, but they 
find guys who fit the profile for how what what they're really good at developing and they draft them and it's not that simple you know you still have to a lot of it is up to the pitcher to want to seek out information that will make him better to have the work ethic to have the pure stuff um, but the Indians they know what they're doing here and, and not everyone it's not a cookie cutter thing I mean like Tristan McKenzie is very different from those guys even like Plesak and Savali are very different um, but they they make sh- what, what's interesting about McKenzie is normally they make sure that these guys are ready although I guess you could say they didn't last year because they kind of had to throw Savali and Plesak into the fire but it's like it's not a coincidence that Savali and McKenzie face the Tigers and not the Yankees in their debut. Uh, Plesak, they were desperate at that time. If they could choose, I don't think he would have made his major league debut at Fenway Park after he only pitched, I think, three times at uh, AAA. Um, But they usually just find ways for them to succeed. It helps that you have a catcher who can navigate them through those starts. Um, But these guys, for the most part, they're strike throwers. That's always going to help you when you're young and inexperienced and nervous and don't know the hitters that well, if you can throw strikes, that's half the battle. Especially now where baseball has become a game where we understand so much more about pitch development and how to add velocity and, and have certain mm-hmm. programs, whether it's weighted balls or um, you know paying attention to uh, the kinetic chain and, and how your body moves on the mound and being able to quantify certain things, you can find more velocity and you can improve upon or build or create new pitches that tunnel off of the ones that you already have. And and we have so much data to help you through that, but it's really difficult to teach somebody, Hey, we're going to command the baseball and not just throw strikes, but we're going to hit our spots on the corners. We're going to stay out of the heart of the plate and we're going to be able to tantalize hitters and throw it just off the corner enough with this particular pitch matching up with the two seamer that you could throw in this sort of situation to Make sure we get plenty of swings outside the strike zone. There are so many more ways that you can build on a profile of a guy that, that commands the ball within the zone than maybe in years past. And McKenzie's so fascinating to me because he is a little different in that what makes him most effective is the fact that, yes, he's, what does Michael Scott say? You're, Jim, you're six foot ten, you weigh 90 pounds. Gumby has a better body than you. Um, I think that quote always stands out to me when I see McKenzie throw, but he's six, five. Yeah. He's six, five. That's going to be the title of this podcast, isn't it? He's six, five. And he's got this wingspan where like his hands, if he puts his arms to his side, I swear his hands go down to his ankles. So when he releases, you know, his fastball sits like 94. When he releases that pitch, like his, it's like Michael Jordan in Space Jam with the final dunk against the Monstars. <laughs> I just made a movie reference. Write that down. Um, you just now it, realized like, you can do this, Michael? <laughs> Come on. We waited the whole movie for you to figure this out at the end. Well, he needed his, uh, what was it, the special juice or whatever? <laughs> special water? Oh, man. Um, but it, like that's what it looks like when McKenzie throws a pitch to you. And like his win wingspan reaches so far and he's so tall and lanky that the ball arrives so fast you have so little time to try to deduce whether it's a fastball or a changeup. that's why his changeup they're really excited about um you know he's, he's got a pretty good curveball like it's he's gonna be really fascinating and if he's throwing now he's throwing like he topped out at 96.5 the other day like if that's legitimate and that wasn't just first start adrenaline, if he's throwing 95, 96 occasionally, then they gets there even quicker. So he's he's different in that he wasn't that straightforward, really good command, doesn't walk anybody, doesn't throw hard, but we can work with it. He did, wasn't really that mold, but he's he's so intriguing for different reasons. And it's not like he walked a, a bunch of guys in the minors. He no. commanded it really well. Um, so it wasn't. It wasn't necessarily something you were expecting to come up and start walking everybody. I think there's just that perception about young pitchers that they're going to avoid the zone. Well, and he was a high school guy, so there was less yeah. of a track record, too. That, I mean, true. Um, but, I mean, he, you mentioned the, I guess you could call it perceived velocity because of the extension on the pitches and how close, you know, that's, that was the old 
sort of Randy Johnson thing where it's just like it's jumping out of his hand so close to the, the plate, it seems like it's on you even faster. And you, you couple that with the fact that he's got a really good spin rate. He's got an above average spin rate. So it already looks like it should be dropping more. And the thing that I was very impressed with, because he did come out of the gate throwing 95, 96, and there's, uh, there's some expectation there that that's going to happen in your first big league start. You're a little jittery and a little amped up. And it's settled closer to, you know, 92, 93, 94 for most of the middle innings. And, and maybe that's just because he used so much energy early throwing 95, 96. But I was very encouraged, especially a guy like his frame and the injury concerns that were there, that when he needed to in those final innings, he could reach back and still get 95, 96 like he was early in the game. And I think that's important, too. I know it's just one start, but the fact that he can do that and that he could still generate that sort of velocity – after probably tiring himself out a little bit in the early innings, it was also very impressive. Yeah, and again, like they're not taking one start against Detroit and showcase. It was a showcase. <laughs> like that doesn't mean Clevenger gets traded. That doesn't mean Plesac is a thing of the past. Um, but it means that hey, you know they hadn't seen him pitch in two years. Nobody had. So what was the harm in just giving him a shot? And now he pitched really well, so see if he can do it a second time. And I think yeah, they'll well, kind of well take enough it. that they're telling Plesak they don't have an opportunity for him right well, now. Well, I think they're kind of taking this little by little right now. I mean, we'll certainly learn more once the deadline Monday passes. But if McKenzie keeps pitching well, there's no reason to take him out of the rotation. If Carrasco keeps pitching poorly, there is reason to to think about moving him to the bullpen and, and getting Plesak back up here. So you can see the wheel spinning and and. I would think in a week's time we would have maybe some firmer answers on on where this rotation stands. But the bottom line is they have some – they've got yeah. a lot of really – it's a good problem to have. They have yeah. a lot of really good options. I mean, Carrasco is almost that, that case that we talked about um, hypothetically before the season began. You know, how does a short season impact sticking with somebody that in a normal season you absolutely would stick with? And Carrasco has enough of a track record and means enough to the organization that – he would continue to get opportunity after opportunity to see, you know, what's going on with the velocity. Why, why are you getting beat up in your second and third time through the lineup? This isn't something that it's not like this is Carrasco of six years ago. This is a guy that has proven that he can be a starting pitcher that gives you 200 dominant innings in a year, as long as he's staying healthy and avoiding getting hit by, by comebackers. So in a normal year, he would get the opportunity to stick in the rotation, but this year, uh, it's a little bit more, of a, a grab bag you don't really know and you're just kind of as, as you said you're taking these in, in such short bursts where you're making decisions that you never would in a typical season but you have to think outside the box and you can throw a guy like Carrasco in the bullpen and make him a multi-inning weapon as you head towards the playoffs that's uh, another great problem to have to figure out how you're going to get that guy innings I think it would take a lot of pressure off of him too to try to figure out what's going on right now and if you look at the numbers, I mean, there is, he's, the longer he's pitched in a game, it's the more he's struggled. That first time through the order, he has had no trouble. You know, Plucko's kind of the same way. Plucko doesn't have the stuff Carrasco does. Um, but, like, I've seen enough of Dominic Leone. I, I don't, we don't need to do that anymore. And you put Carrasco back there, if, if all is right, in a playoff series, and, and then you don't have to force your starting pitchers to throw seven innings every night, even though they pretty much have, like they're in a really good spot with the pitching. And that's why they have, again, some leverage, some flexibility when it comes to trade talks to try to fix this offense. Do you have, you don't have to give me a whole lengthy answer here. Just make it very quick. Most likely started to get traded if one does get traded. Clevenger, but I still think it's less than 50%. I didn't ask for your, I just asked for most likely starter to be traded. So I could put that as the headline and then we could leave it at that. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's the only one that makes sense. And he was going to be talked about ad nauseum this winter. So, but so much yeah. depends on what the return is for a guy. If, yeah. if you're, if someone comes to the Indians and says, we'll give you this player, this player, and this player for police sack. And the Indians look at their evaluations of those players and they see them as more surplus value than any other trade that they were getting for Mike Clevenger that I don't think they would hesitate if they thought it was a good deal to move Plesak instead. You know, it comes, it's not a, 
and I've seen this some on, on Twitter and, and some writing that, you know, well, we, you don't trade Clevenger because you're trying to win. Well, you only know half the equation. If it's yes or no, do you trade that guy? I need to know when I'm getting back. I can't answer this properly until I know what the deal would look like to send him out of here. Maybe you find yeah. something that makes you better now and in the, the long run because of the way that the, the ball club is set up. It's always contingent on the return unless there are financial motivations, which we saw with Corey Kluber. Um, but that's, that's not the case here. I mean, I don't think they're going to, I've heard people toss out that, you know, maybe they'll go trade for JD Martinez. Like, I don't think they're willing to take on 20 million a year for the next three years. Um, I think and is Boston just giving you all of this cash and, and, right. and they don't even know, we don't know if, if Martinez is going to pick up his options is, is he going to pick out? up his output at the plate he's been dreadful this year but <laughs> point is um because he can't go it, watch video man yeah i just it's always depends on what teams are willing to give up and just how many times have you seen the indians sell low or you know maybe act too quickly on something and and again the kluber thing is kind of an anomaly because that was like it was clearly financially driven because if, if it wasn't, they just never would have picked up his option. Like they were not going to go into the season with Corey Kluber because um, they weren't going to pay him $18 million. And it looks like they dodged a bullet with uh, him not, I think he threw one inning this year. And yeah, again, we could talk about Class A and Delano De Shields. Another Delano day that, De Shields is going to beat everybody in the war. <laughs> but they're not going to. I never would have to... bet on that before the season began. Yeah, they never act out of desperation. So I still think there's a better chance they pluck some outfielder off of some crappy team's roster and don't give up much, something like that. Yeah, I mean, if you asked me to name a starting pitcher, I'd say Clevenger. It does all come down to price because I've also seen those that say, well, don't go get Jackie Bradley Jr. because he's, he's stunk and he's not that much. He's better than what you have in center field right now, but not a ton better. And yeah, if the price is Tristan McKenzie, as I've seen some people try to speculate, then yeah, of course, you can tell them where, stick that where the sun don't shine. But if the Red Sox are looking at this and saying, well, we've got a guy here that we don't plan on giving the qualifying offer to, we're not going to get any sort of compensation if he walks away at the end of the year. We're just looking for something and it fits along, you know, something you're comfortable with, with paying. I don't, I'm not just saying, oh, I don't like that guy because uh, he's not that much better. Well, he is better, and if you use him strategically, especially against right-handed pitching where he's been about a league average bat over the past three or four years, strictly against righties on top of being maybe the best defensive center fielder right now, uh, or up, certainly up there. So you're going to get the defense along with if he's just playing against righties, a guy that could benefit you in the lineup by just being, as we've talked about before, replacing uh, F with a C. Then I, I'm not. I'm not just gonna say no. No thanks. I don't. I don't like that guy. Is there anybody of, of veterans? Because I know you get start to get greedy and salivate when we talk Clevenger trades and prospects that could be coming back. But is there veterans, or are there veterans that you think might be a good fit? Yeah, I, I think it's important to look at, like you said, the F to the C thing is is valid because I think Delano DeShields has a role on this team as a backup as a pinch runner, defensive replacement, guy who can get a bunt down if you need it. Um, and he has some value, especially in this sort of season where you have expanded rosters. Um, but I, I think you can do better. I think Jackie Briley Jr. would make sense. Um, you know, you don't have to be an all-star to be an improvement for this outfield. I think you look at Oscar Mercado's numbers this season, and I think it's hard to say, okay, well, he spent two weeks away from the team. Let's just throw him back in there and see how he does. Well, you know, that's, that's a big risk. Wouldn't you feel more comfortable trading for a proven commodity? Um, I, I still believe in the Naplo Lupquin platoon. I know Luplo has been dreadful this season. I think I you're still, starting to see some better at bats from him though. I agree with you. I think Tyler Naquin has hit the ball pretty well since he's come back. Um, so then it's just, to me, it's a matter of like, can you find someone better than Domingo Santana? And I know he's had some hard hit balls lately and, you know, he's walked a decent amount. Like, I, I don't know. I think you can do better, especially with his defensive limitations. Um, so yeah, I, th there's, there's a number of guys. And it, again, this is where it gets tricky because if a team goes five and zero between now and Monday afternoon, 
they might not want to sell their their veterans. So uh, it's tough. But like Arizona's an interesting team. Um, they're one of those teams that's like kind of out of it, but no one's really out of it. And they've got three outfielders who would all be upgrades in Starling Marte, Cole Calhoun, David Peralta. Um, the Angels have Brian Goodwin, who is not spectacular, but again, someone who's average or a little below average is above average for this outfield. You know, there are veterans who are having miserable seasons on miserable teams who maybe a change of scenery would give them a spark, like D. Gordon, Shinsu Chu, Kevin Pillar. I don't know. I mean, these names aren't exciting, but you could probably get them for but, not that much. And can you get average offense out of them? Because yeah, if that would be a win. This this whole team is based on the guy. The top five in the lineup have to be carrying most of the offense, and for most of the season they haven't. But if Lindor is starting to wake up, and I think you're seeing some signs of that, Ramirez every time I think he's starting to wake up offensively. He has one of those games where it's like. You, a ball that you should have drove off the wall gets popped up to center field and you start looking at his launch angle and you're wondering if your sw- his swing is all messed up. But, I mean, Cesar Hernandez has been exactly what you'd want at the top of the lineup. Franmil Reyes has had some good stretches. Overall, the numbers look pretty good. Santana's walked a lot. But if, if you're not getting the tremendous production out of those guys, then it's not really going to matter what you're getting below. But if they are doing what you think they can do and you're getting average offense from other places in the lineup, that is going to instantly upgrade this this offense. You, you laid out one that I think would be a, a, a pretty good fit. I think it's Shinsu Chu, who is, if you looked at the surface numbers, you'd say, how is that guy an upgrade? Because he's got a 662 OPS right now. He's carrying a 296 on base percentage. And you're thinking that I have stumbled, hit my head, and have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. But if you look below the numbers, he's th- like the expected numbers. He's well above average and expected batting average. He's well above average. He's in the 71st percentile and expected Woba. He's hit into some really bad luck. He's, he actually is in the top 20% in expected slugging, and it's none of it is reflected in the numbers. I know he's terrible defensively. We saw that when he was in his prime here in Cleveland. He was never a great outfielder, and it has not gotten any better. He's not, you know, sprint speed is not what it once was. But as far as a guy that could help this offense out and you probably wouldn't have to pay much for in his final year with the Rangers, Shinsu Chu, I think that reunion would make some sense. It would be fun. It would be like when Kenny Lofton came back in 07, right? Yeah, I think that would be a similar, you know, with the the standing ovation. Oh, wait, the cardboard cutouts are sitting and they can't stand up. Mike Sarbaugh holding him at third when the Indians are playing the <laughs> oh, no. World Series at Globe Life Park Why in Arlington. Why would you do these things to these people? And the Indians and Rangers have had conversations, so it's not like, you know, that it'd be like the first phone call and dialogue these two teams have ever had. So I think if you're looking at guys that are in their final year of their deal, that would you could probably find something that would work financially and you likely wouldn't have to give up too much, I think he would work. I think he checks a lot of those boxes. How about a random inning of the day, speaking of Shinsu Chu? Sure, let's go for it. All right. I know for a fact we haven't done this guy since we have a list. Um, (laughs) Very very true. This person played for the Indians in 2014 and 2015. Any guesses? No, the fact that they played on the Indians in 2014 and 2015 is not enough for me to guess. Okay, position player. Played 42 games. He hit a robust 161 with a 558 OPS. Wow. Uh, and nothing yet. <laughs> okay. He was originally a ninth round draft pick. In 2010, um, he'll be celebrating his 31st birthday in about a week. Oh, happy birthday. Yeah, nah. His middle name is Butler. <laughs> ah, the one thing I was waiting for. <laughs> I have no idea, man. Be something better. Uh, let's see. He hit seven home runs 
in his time with the Indians. He has played for three teams in the majors, none since 2016. And actually, it looks like his professional career ended in 2017. 2014, 2015. I keep thinking of, uh, oh, what was that outfielder's name? Uh, Tyler Holt. That's what I keep thinking of. No, not T. Holt. I'll give you a pretty good hint. I just went to this guy's Twitter account and I'm blocked. Who knew? <laughs> what? How did that happen? Uh, I think I'm one of many, many, many. Well, the only one that I know of from that era that really disliked you because of the way you spelled your name was Zach Walters. It is Zach Walters. On Twitter, at the Iron Teddy. Um, Walters, I mean, we all remember one of those seven home runs, right? It was the game winner against the Diamondbacks, I think, in the first of a doubleheader. And post-game, he pulled up a chair in the center of the clubhouse <laughs> and had a circle around him to interview yeah, him. Yeah, that, that was the first for me, and I think the last time I've ever had something like that happen. The Indians got him for as Drupal Cabrera at the deadline in 2014. And, and shout out to his Drupal Cabrera because at the time you're thinking, okay, he's he's heading towards the the end of his career. That dude just mm -hmm. continues to stick around and 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 actually be a well. productive player. Yeah, credit to him. I never would have guessed that that was going to continue to happen, but uh, credit to him. Even in his short time with the Indians, Walters played second base, shortstop, third base, left field, and right field. Pretty impressive. Um, and I will never forget the time that uh, Terry Francona said he was a jack-of-all-trades. And I put in a quote that he said he's a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none. And I just forgot that Francona purposefully did not say the second half of that phrase. Uh, Tito was not very happy with me that day. Um, and maybe that's why Zach Walters has me blocked. Or maybe it's because of the time I went up to him in spring training and just wanted to ask asked him if, I, if he had two minutes to talk about the upcoming season and his preparation for it. Nothing crazy. He was sitting at, the lo at his locker on his phone. He said he did not have time to talk to me. Um, I said, oh, okay. And then he stopped and he said, you can just write that I'm going to mix a good Gatorade this year. And I was like, what? So I tweeted that out and then I was blocked. <laughs> Strange bird. Uh, I wonder what would happen in an at-bat between Zach Walters and James Karinchek. Because you have 65 career strikeouts for Zach Walters in 85 games. And of course... Karen check being he is what he is. Would that be the uh, immovable force against the um, unstoppable object or whatever the hell that saying is? You have a movable force against the, uh, <laughs> the, the mobile object? The extremely movable force. All right, final thing. Uh, I don't know if you happen to see, but uh, the BBWAA in Chicago tweeted out that they were very upset that apparently, uh, I'm guessing it's someone like a, a blogger that covers the, the White Sox was on a Zoom call and asked if Keuchel was on a hit limit today. Of course, with Lucas Giolito throwing a no-hitter yesterday, so it's like a ha-ha funny sort of thing. And the BBWAA in Chicago did not like this, and they tweeted about it and said, we need to make sure we don't get fans in these things, and we need to make sure that it's actual legitimate media covering this. And I looked at the tweet and sort of laughed because you and I know how extremely worthless about 95% of these conversations are in pre and post game. And it's super important that we take all of this really seriously. But I did think of the, uh, the Ryan Lewis, Jordan Bastion joke stealing incident of several years ago. Do you remember? Yeah, but why don't you tell it? Because you know, you can't that still gets referenced like on a weekly basis, by the <laughs> you way, you can't, 
You can't tell any jokes in a, in a managerial setting. Never mind the fact that most of those things usually start with some sort of funny quip and end on a light-hearted note. Uh, oftentimes you get into serious stuff by making some sort of stupid joke, like the time that Ryan Lewis referenced, uh, what was it, G Giovanni, what was this, the left-hander? Giovanni Soto, right? I think was the left-hander in this situation. Yeah. So Giovanni Soto came in and got a double play on one pitch the night before, if I'm remembering this situation correctly. And Ryan Lewis told Jordan Bastian, and I, were you there too? But he, he said, he told the joke of, oh, I wonder if, if Soto is available today. And haha, it was really funny. Mm -hmm. And then they got into the, the, uh, the managerial session and Jordan Bastian swiped in, stole the joke and asked Tito <laughs> if Soto was available that day. Of course, Tito doubled over in laughter and Ryan Lewis was forever scarred. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, first of all, with the Chicago thing, I mean, there, there is a learning curve, especially in Cleveland. Like, I think we know by now people who have been around Tito for eight seasons. Like, there are certain ways to phrase questions to get the answer that you're looking for or that you're hoping for. Basically, the easier way to say this is there are certain ways to ask questions that are never going to get you anywhere near what you're hoping for. So I think... I think that's tough. I mean, I, you have to, there's such a feel to it. Like managers, you know, there's the phrase of like, they get the ass, they get red ass where like they are just going to be cold and short and not put up with any bullshit. And so you have to feel the room and sense the mood and, um, you know, you can rub people the wrong way. It's this old, this has been in place forever. You know, the best way um, to learn that lesson it's to ask something stupid and then get chewed out. Yeah. And then it, it serves as a lesson to everybody. Sometimes well, we all you, ask you, those you, sorts of things that warrant the side-eyed look. Like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Yeah, you can write that a player is a jack-of-all-trades and a master of none when the manager simply said jack-of-all-trades. And uh, you can get chewed out for that and then understand why it is important to uh, phrase things pop properly. There is no better learning experience. You're right. Well, you can subscribe to the show. Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us over at Anchor. You can follow us on Twitter at TJ Zuppi, at Zach Meisel, at Selby is Godcast, and at This Is All Just One Giant Showcase. Until next time, be good, everybody, and uh, we're out of here. See ya. <laughs>